Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Thorn in the Nest, Episode 24. Curiosity was rife in Chillicothe and its vicinity in regard to the ceremony about to take place at Old Town, and as the set time drew near, very many might have been seen approaching the spot, singly or in parties. Clennanan, hindered by the demands of his profession, was one of the last to arrive on the ground. He found the Indians drawn up in a hollow square outside of which was the concourse of white spectators. Inside Woof, with his promised bribe, a horse, a new saddle and bridle, and a new rifle for each of the sons of his victim. Kenneth had come alone. He knew that Dale had preceded him, and whom he was to escort thither, and there they were on the opposite side of the square, Nell in a becoming riding hat and habit, sitting her horse with accustomed ease and grace, Dale by her side, the picture of content and good humor. Kenneth sighed involuntarily. What would he not have given to be in Dale's place? Yet he was glad to see his friend so favored rather than the Englishman. The next moment he perceived that Littleton also was one of the assembled throng, at some little distance from those two, but in a position to get a good view of their faces, and that he was watching them closely with a look of jealous rage. Kenneth's eyes turned to Nell again to see hers fixed for an instant upon the burly form and face of Woof, with an expression of disgust and horror. But the ceremony was beginning, and Frey Little claimed the attention of all present. The two young men came forward into the hollow square. Woof presented his horses and trappings. They lifted their hands, and declaring that they then shook hands with Woof, in token of their forgiveness, saluted him as a brother, and lighting the calumet of peace, smote with him. The scene was one of deep solemnity, and many eyes filled with tears as they gazed upon it. But it was over, and the crowd began to disperse. Tongues were loosed, and Kenneth, silently threading his way among the talkers, casually overheard the remark. There is a white woman here, they say, who has been a great many years with the Indians. He almost caught his breath for an instant, as he suddenly reined in his horse, his heart beating like a hammer, a wild hope springing up within his breast, a mingled emotions surging through his brain. Strange that he had not thought of such a possibility. He turned back, dismounted, and secured his horse to a sapling, doing it all mechanically. Then he strolled about among the Indians, shaking hands with them and kindly inquiring after their health and that of their families, patting the heads of the papooses, nodding smilingly to the older children, and scanning with furtive but keen scrutiny the face of each elderly squaw. At length he came upon the object of his search, a woman past middle age, whose features were unmistakably those of the white race. She sat on the grass in the shade of a tree near the door of a wigwam, her fingers busily employed in embroidering a moccasin. 
She seemed scarcely aware of his presence as he stood before her, vainly striving to still the tumultuous beating of his heart. Controlling his voice by great effort, he addressed her in English in a quiet tone. How do you do, mother? She looked up for an instant, shook her head slowly, and dropped her eyes upon her work again. You understand me? he said inquiringly. You have not forgotten your native tongue. Me squaw was the laconic answer, unaccompanied by so much as a glance. He sat down on a stump near at hand, the very same on which Littleton had seated himself the previous night, and watched her silently for a moment. While he considered the best manner of approaching her so as to win her confidence, and learn whether she could indeed tell him aught of that which all these years he had been trying to discover. "'You are a white woman. Why should you wish to conceal the fact?' he said at length in a soft, persuasive tone. "'I have no design against you, but on the contrary would gladly do you any service in my power.' Again she raised her head, this time giving him a steady look. And was it fancy that for a single instant there was something like a gleam of recognition in her eye? If so, it was gone again before he could be sure it had been there. Well, she answered indifferently in the Shawnee tongue that she did not understand what he had just said, and that she was not a pale face but an Indian woman, the wife of a Shawnee brave. Kenneth sat for a moment in perplexed silence. Her assertion that she did not belong to the white race was evidently false. Yet what could be her motive for making it? If she preferred to remain with the tribe, no one could force her away, or would he be likely to care to do so. As he watched her again, busied with her work, apparently wholly careless of his presence, and studied her face, recalling the description that had been given him, calculating what her age might be, and the changes produced by the hardships and exposure of her wild life. The conviction grew upon him that it was possible, even probable. She was the very woman for whom he had so long and vainly searched. He determined upon a broad course. Leaning toward her and gazing full into her face, Riuma Clark, he said, have you quite forgotten the old life in the little valley among the mountains of eastern Tennessee, the husband and children you then loved so dearly, the kind neighbors at whose house you were when the Indians swooped down so suddenly upon you all? She had not been able to repress a slight start at the unexpected sound of that name, or to entirely preserve the stolidity of countenance with which she had begun the interview. She rose hastily and disappeared from view within the wigwam. The action left in Kenneth's mind little room for doubt of her identity, but alas, of what avail that he had found her if she could not be induced to speak of those long past occurrences and to reveal the secret which, if known to any mortal, was possessed by her alone. His heart beat almost to suffocation, while he forced himself to sit waiting quietly there at the door of her wigwam in the forlorn hope that she might return in a truthful and communicative mood. He was alone, no one near though at the distance of a few hundred yards, the young Indians were engaged in active sports, and their shouts and laughter occasionally broke the stillness of the woodland scene. He waited what seemed an age to his tortured nerves. 
perceiving neither sound nor motion within the tent, then rose and moved slowly toward the spot where he had left his faithful steed. He had not quite reached it when a hand was laid lightly upon his arm, and turning he found a tall young brave standing by his side. Does the pale face forget? he asked in good English, holding out his hand. Have we ever met before? asked Kenneth, earnestly scanning the lad's face, while he took the hand in a cordial grasp and shook it heartily. Indians never forget good white men, continued the lad. White man, find little horn in the snow, take him in his arms, carry him to his fire, wrap him in his blanket, feed him. White man, very good. Indian boy, love good white man. Oh, I remember you now, cried Kenneth, joyfully, shaking hands with increased cordiality, while his face lighted up with his rare, beautiful smile. I am glad to meet you again. Tell me, can I do anything more for you? Little horn's turn now. What would my friend with white swan, the warrior black eagle squaw? I wish to talk with her about my mother and father, whom she once knew, said Kenneth, but she refuses to listen or to speak. Has my friend heap money? I have some. Will money open her lips? The Indian gave an expressive grunt, then, then went on to tell of Littleton's visit to their camp and interview with the woman, of which he had been an unnoticed witness. He had not heard or understood all the talk between them, but enough to enable him to gather by the assistance of their tones and gestures, the holding up of the purse, and the eager hand outstretched to receive it, that a bribe had been offered and accepted, and her conduct of today, which also he had closely watched, had convinced him that her promise had been to maintain silence toward Kenneth, of whose intended visit Littleton must have known. Clendenin listened in great surprise. Who could it have been? He did not know that he had an enemy in the whole world, and this visit was entirely unexpected even to himself. But Littlehorn's communication gave him fresh hope. Would he be his messenger to the white squall? He asked earnestly. Would he go to her and say that if she would talk with the pale face and answer his questions as well as she could, he would give her as much money as the pale face visitor of the previous night had promised her if she kept silence? The Indian accepted the commission, went at once to the wigwam, Kenneth slowly following, passed in, and a few moments after reappearing in company with the woman, a change had come over her face. It no longer wore the stolid look Kenneth had seen upon it during their earlier interview. The features were agitated, and there were traces of tears on the cheeks. His words had recalled half-forgotten scenes of bitter sorrow, terror, and despair. Speak. I listen, she said in the English tongue, seating herself and motioning to him to do the same, then burying her face in her hands. He dropped upon the grass by her side and began at once in low, quiet, almost mournful tones. Many years ago, before I was born, there stood two log cabins, some half mile apart, in a little valley among the mountains of Tennessee. A young couple named Clark, with a family of several small children, lived in one. The other was occupied by two couples bearing the same family name, Clendenin. The men were distantly related, one older by twenty years or more than the other. He had married a widow with one child, a daughter, and she had shortly after become the wife of his younger kinsman. Kenneth paused. Go on, said his hearer, in smothered tones. 
Little Horn, with native delicacy, had withdrawn and thrown himself upon the grass just out of earshot. Kenneth went on. These two families were the sole residents of the little valley. The nearest white neighbor lived miles away on the other side of the mountains, and between lay forests filled with wild beasts and hostile Indians. One lovely summer day, Mr. Clark was helping his neighbors in the field, his wife visiting theirs. She had taken her children with her, and they were at play in the dooryard. In the course of the day, both mother and daughter were taken sick, and two babies were born within half an hour of each other. Mrs. Clark had her hands more than full in attending upon the women and the children. Both boys, hastily wrapped in a blanket and laid in the same cradle, had received no further attention. When a screaming from her own little ones, Mother! Mother! The Indians! The Indians! sent her flying to their rescue. Yes, yes, sobbed his listener. Oh, my darlings, tomahawked and scalped before my very eyes. I see their bleeding corpses now. Their fathers, too, shot down as he came running from the field to try to save us. And then I was dragged away, never to see home or relations again. Then you are indeed Reuma Clark? Kenneth's voice trembled with agitation as he asked the question. She bowed assent, her face still hidden in her hands, but suddenly dropping them she gazed eagerly, searchingly into his face. And you, you who look so like the dead, who are you? One of those babies born on that terrible day, he answered with emotion, which I do not know. And that is what I have hoped, even against hope, that you could tell me. You laid us down together, you remember, and to this day the question remains unsolved which was the uncle and which the nephew. Did you observe any mark upon either, anything at all, to distinguish him from the other? Clendenin was greatly agitated as he put this question, and his breathing was almost suspended as he waited for the reply. Yes, she said, one had a very peculiar mark on his breast. I was sort of expecting it, and looked for it right away. What was it, and on which child? He asked with the tone and manner of one to whom the answer must bring, life or death. Wait, she said, let me tell it in my own way. Clark, he'd been a cabin boy aboard a ship, and a, an old sailor had tattooed an anchor on his arm. "'Twas fur up above his elbow, and didn't show except he took pains to roll his sleeve up a purpose." She spoke hesitatingly, as one who had half forgotten the use of her mother tongue, and to Clennon the suspense was agony, well nigh unendurable, but by a strong effort he kept himself quiet. Well, she continued, the oldest, Mrs. Clendenon, was over to her house not a week before that awful day. And Clark, he showed her that mark onto his arm, and I saw that she turned kind of sick and faint at the sight, and then, quick as thought, she slipped her hand into the bosom of her dress. Clark, he turned away with a laugh and gone out over the door, and I asked her what she did that for, and she said she was afraid her child would be marked, and if it twas to be she wanted it where it wouldn't show. Then she got up to go home, and says she will not speak of this, Reuma, and I'll try not to think of it. So there will be less likelihood of mischief coming of it. And it was her child, the older woman's, cried Kenneth breathlessly. And is this what you speak of, tearing open his shirt bosom as he spoke? Yes, that's it, as sure as I'm a living woman. 
she answered, gazing curiously at the deep red mark in the form of an anchor on the left breast. And now you know which of the two you are. He drew a long, sighing breath of relief, as one who feels a heavy weight fall from his shoulders, clasped his hands and lifted his eyes to heaven, his face radiant with unutterable joy and thankfulness, his lips moving, though no sound came from them. She watched him in wonder and amazement. What's the difference, she asked, as he resumed his former attitude, and how comes it that your mother didn't know by that very mark that you were hers? She died within the air, he said with emotion, raising himself in the bed and looking through the open door. She saw her husband slain, his reeking scalp held aloft by savage, and with a wild scream she fell back and expired. And the rest? The younger Clendenin gained the house barely in time to secure the door before the Indians reached it. And keeping up a vigorous fire through a chink in the wall, his wife, ill as she was, loading for him, there happened to be two guns in the house, he at length succeeded in driving off the enemy. A few weeks later they left forever the scene of the terrible tragedy, taking the two babies with them. The interview lasted some time longer, Kenneth expressing his gratitude to the woman with much warmth and earnestness, and urging her to return to civilized life. This she steadily declined to do, saying that she did not know of a living relative among the whites, had an Indian husband, children, and grandchildren, and had learned to like her wild life. Hearing that, he ceased his importunity, gave her all the money he had with him, and a written promise of more, tearing a leaf from his notebook for the purpose. Then, with a cordial shake of the hand and an invitation to visit him the next day in Chillicothe, that he might redeem his promise, bade her goodbye. As he turned to go, Little Horn rose from the grass and came toward him, asking of his success. In reply, Kenneth told him he had learned all he wished to know from the white squaw, and was greatly indebted to him for his timely assistance. He would have added a reward, but the lad utterly refused to accept it, saying it was very little he had done in return for what he owed to the Savior of his life. And then he added that his influence with the white squaw was due to the fact that he was her son, and that he had informed her of the great service Kenneth had done him years ago. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic. Thank you.